Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast, episode 13. Uh, great to have you on another show. Um, also great to have uh, one, of my, one of my close friends, uh, Frank Wilden on the show. Frank, you, Frank, thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure, Sean. Nice to be here. Excellent. So, Frank, you're a, you're a retail food strategist. Um, obviously, you work with um, uh, some great brands. We've known each other for uh, nearly two years now, so it's been great. How did you get into the hospitality industry uh, at the start? That's a good question. The short answer to that is it was really through a a love of wine. Um, I had a a bit of a midlife crisis at the age of 30. Right. (laughs) And uh, decided that the career I was in at the time, which was in the shipping industry, whilst it was very lucrative, wasn't the one that I wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. And my love of wine had me thinking about opening a wine bar. Okay. And it wasn't that long after I first had those thoughts that the person who was doing the uh, venue development at Southgate and putting all the food tenants together approached me as to whether I'd be interested in opening a wine bar at Southgate. Okay, so that's obviously in the CBD in Melbourne. That's correct. Yep. And I thought, well, this sounds interesting. And so I went and had a look at the site, which was just like standing in a construction zone and Mm -hmm. looked back across towards the north of... Melbourne at the Flinders Street Station. I thought, yeah, this looks like a pretty good place to open a pub or at least a wine bar. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, and hence, uh, what came out of it was that uh, the late Walter Burke and I mm-hmm. together opened what was known as Walter's Wine Bar. Right. And how, how, how big a venue was that, just to put in context? Yeah, Walter's was uh, about 220 square metres, I think. Okay. And it had a great space on the top level, of course, right at the Arts Centre precinct end of the Southgate complex and what that did was it just tapped perfectly into the zeitgeist of Melbourne with its more relaxed informal attitude towards serving food and wine and it became a mecca for wine lovers uh, not just from out of Melbourne but from all around Australia and indeed from around the world. Yeah right. Was that almost the first of its type into that into that sort of spiel of wine bars? Well of course we'd had Jimmy Watson's wine bar around forever and a day in in Carlton, yes. and it's still there today and still does a great job. Mm. Walters was probably the most, uh, or the first rather, of the contemporary, if you like, ideations of wine bars, where it had a very international range of wines available, lots mm-hmm. of wines by the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was moving away from the, if you like, traditional, more pubby image of wine bars mm-hmm. um, and much more towards a place which was certainly female friendly. Okay. uh, And where people knew that they could relax and convivially enjoy a glass of wine with their food. Because would it be safe to say, I'm I'm saying we're talking sometime in the mid to late 90s, somewhere around that point? No, uh, yes, I think this would have been about 91 or 92, I mean. Okay, so uh, during that time, uh, I'd imagine the, the wine scene would have been coming out of uh, a period of um, growth to some degree, but obviously it was very much a, a a white man's kind of world and drink. So how did it how did it sort of move into that that female friendly sort of rank? Because obviously wine is such a such a massive part of the market uh, now and so much more accessible to more people. 
I think, look, it's a really good question. I think that um, Victoria uh, and Melbourne had been moving towards a more European style for a long time. I mean, you go back and look at our historic roots with the Greek and the Italian migrants predominantly here in Melbourne. And we'd always had a strongly European influence, but we couldn't drink in the way that the Europeans could until we had the significant... Um, liberalisation of the liquor licensing laws. Yes, of course. Uh, through the 80s as a result of the liquor licensing inquiry done by John Nienhausen. Yes. So we'd been moving in that direction and when Southgate came along as uh, a new dining precinct, yes. we really hadn't had anything like that at all before. And it was also the first real development that was being done on the river, utilising the Arra. Yes, and now, of course, we take the use of the river and our waterways as an intrinsic part, potentially, of, mm. a, of a great experience. Mm. But that's a fairly recent development. Mm. So when, <clears throat> pardon me, when Southgate came along, there was a, a really good diversity of offers down there. And okay. given its proximity to the arts centre, yes. uh, it also fed off people who were more interested in those those more European and more cultured ways of doing things, including eating and drinking. Yes. And I think that's really what led to the the success of the precinct, that it embraced a certain style of and a certain way of life Mm. and brought it all together in one precinct. Okay. But we hadn't really seen before. And of course Southgate became the model for um, a number of other precincts around Australia in the next couple of decades. For example, um, in 1998, I think it was in Sydney, we saw the Cockle Bay Wharf development. Right, of course, yes. Right? yes. Which was very much like what Southgate was however many years earlier. Right, okay. So you had, you had Walters, obviously it was, uh, I'd imagine, going quite well in a, in a, in a new development in a, in a great part of the city. Um, what did you do beyond there to continue your journey in, in hospitality? Well, I think the one thing about uh, restaurants is I guess uh, I've been a bit of a serial restaurateur in some ways. Yes. Some would say a serial offender. (laughs) uh, My wife would say I describe myself now as uh, a former restaurateur at times, really a retail food strategist. Yes. She's of the view that I'm just a lapsed restaurateur. Right, okay. Um, Look, I had lots of other projects. Things that excited me, I tended to just pick pick them up and run with them. Right. So, hence the uh, Laurent Bakery chain. Yes. Um, then I had uh, a restaurant at the casino, when a Crown Casino when it first opened. Right. That was the Duck with the late Philip Murphy and okay. uh, James Tan. Uh, then I had the restaurants in Sydney at, at Cockle Bay Wharf. Yes. The Wharf at Woolloomooloo. Yes. It's really been about um, opportunities that have excited me. Uh-huh. Um, I've tended to recognise the potential of those and think, well, why not? Yeah, absolutely. And and were you finding those opportunities, were they mainly coming to you off the back and the success of Walters? Or was it it something you were actually searching for or something you were reading about? I obviously know you're a great great reader of a lot of different content, keep yourself very close to the game. So was it it something that was coming to you or something you were trying to look at? Um, I think the best way to give give an answer to that is to actually give an example yes. as to how I came to open the restaurants at Cockle Bay Wharf. Okay. And that was, uh, I remember it was uh, very early on, early in the morning 
when I was at Noosa Heads, I think in the month of February, probably 1998. Yes. And it was so hot outside. Right. Um, that you couldn't do anything. So I was just sitting on the couch, reading the paper, mm-hmm. looking at it, this beautiful blue view. Yes. I was reading the Financial Review, and there was an article in there about how um, a couple of Melbourne restaurateurs, yes. Paul Mathis and uh, Simon Go from Chinderia, mm-hmm. had been attracted to a development in Sydney. Mm. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. So I rang, I think it was Simon, and said to Simon, what do you think about it? He said, oh, I think it's a pretty good idea. I said, well, is there someone I should speak with? And he said, oh, yeah, talk with this chap. Yes. So he gave me a name and telephone number, and I duly rang him. He wasn't available. I left a message for the fellow to return a call. Right. When the chap got back to his desk, he saw him a message. He picked up the phone, he rang his boss, and he said to his boss, guess who's just called me? Right. He said, it's the guy... It's the guy who owns the restaurant that we were in last night. Now, as it turned out, the person that I called, he and his boss had had dinner the night before at my restaurant at the casino, the Duck Restaurant. Right. And they were saying, gee, what a great restaurant this is. We should get these guys up to Mel- up to uh, Sydney. Up to Sydney, right. And then the next morning, I've rung and left a message for him to call me. Yes. And again, very much like it was with Walter's Wine Bar, I've gone up to Sydney, stood in the space, looked at the opportunity and said, well, what a great place to open a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that was how we came to open Coast Restaurant, mm-hmm. which was, <clears throat> pardon me, really interesting because Sydney historically has had a lot of restaurants. It's been very thick in talent at the top end. Yes. Um, and then it's tended to fall away quite quickly. Right. And my rationale for that has been because... It, the top end was so thick, yes. it sucked up a lot of the talent that would have normally gone to that middle level. Right? Second, yes. so it was understandable that the top end was so strong and the next layer down was so weak. Right. Melbourne, on the other hand, has been quite the opposite, where right. we've normally been pretty skinny in terms of how many restaurants we've been able to support right at the top end. Yes. So that meant there's been less opportunities for the talent to progress. So it stayed down a layer, yes. and hence at that next level down has been a much stronger, broader offer. Right. But Sydney hadn't had that. So what we did was pitch a restaurant uh, to the Sydney market, which was unashamedly um, price-pointed and in terms of culinary aspirations, etc., at the upper end of the middle level. Okay. But certainly much more affordable and accessible than what the top end had been. Okay. And we did that, and it was a smash hit okay. overnight. Wow. And, and Sydney side has really embraced, if you like, the value proposition of course. that we were delivering to them. Because yes. normally for them to get exposure to that level of professionalism, quality, etc., they had to spend a lot more. They had to go to fine dining. They had to... Yeah. Re- and indeed, we were... You would have been a level of that. Yeah, we were a level yeah. of that, but we yeah. were in a much more relaxed way. Right, Okay. So it was much more relaxed and stylish and easy. Okay. And there wasn't the same sort of price point or formality associated with what they'd been accustomed to at the very upper end. Right. Wow. So, so Sydney side has really embraced that. And indeed now, I mean, the Sydney market is, is so strong. Mm-hmm. It's so strong. Mm-hmm. And the restaurants, <coughs> pardon me, right at the top end are still doing very well. Yep. And then in that next level down, 
the restaurants that are doing very well are still really delivering on the same fundamental value proposition that we did mm -hmm. nearly 20 years ago. Yeah, right. Where it's where you take the values of the highest level mm -hmm. and you apply it in the relevant way to your own offer a step down. I want to talk about that a bit more uh, in detail as we go on through this interview, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, one of the biggest questions I get when people ask me about what I do in opening restaurants and venues is, what does that actually mean, Sean? Now, I think you'd probably get that as well with your, with your title as a retail food strategist. Mm. What, how do you explain what you do for brands? Yeah, I guess um, I always say I'm in a fortunate position where I actually get to think about those things. Yeah, right. And one of the things I've learned from my time within the hospitality industry in particular is that when you're in the middle of the forest on a daily basis, it yes. can actually be very hard to recognise the trees. Yes. Yeah, and right. it can be very simple to get caught up in your own particular self-fulfilling uh, prophecies and thought bubbles. Yes. Um, Restaurateurs, um, in particular, I think, are notorious for being experts on everything. Yes. And their either inability or unwillingness to listen and to take external advice has often brought about the downfall of many of them. Interesting. So I'm fortunate with the clients that I have now mm -hmm. that I actually get to look at their businesses and simply think about how we actually make that business better mm -hmm. and to def and to say well look this is where we are now yep. but it's not necessarily where we want to be in the future mm. let's define where we want to be in the future be very clear about that and then set out once we have that strategy set out the critical tactics which will help us deliver on that strategy yes and <clears throat> there's a great quote by i think the former uh, head of GE, Jack Welsh, mm -hmm. who talked, who said said that leadership is uh, about getting the herd to mm -hmm. all move roughly north. Yes, yes. Right? And by that he meant, of course, that people can go off in different directions, and mm. you know some can be going northeast and some are going northwest. But at the end of the day, you've got to be able to get your arms around everybody and get them all moving in the pretty much the same direction right? and bring them back in to the midpoint. Mm. One of the things that I do with my clients is that having devised the strategy in terms of where we're going mm. is to try and ensure that everybody's moving in the most efficient way to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And that we don't have people going off because it's very easy to have a significant divergence from what you intend. Yes, right? yes. If at the outset, you're not moving in the right way. The oh. academic term is self-efficacy. It's okay. I'm just interjecting. <coughs> self-efficacy. Uh, like this is actually a recording. With <laughs> own, so, <laughs> yeah, feel free to not interrupt. That's <laughs> <laughs> a useful interjection. Self-efficacy. I might, I might leave that in. Um, <laughs> this is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, anyway. So, Frank, I was going to ask you... Do, um, with some of the brands you're working with, obviously they're, they're massive. They're massive brands. Mm. Um, obviously, most of the time, international brands. Um, when they're engaging with you, they're obviously at a point where they want to change. But do you find that most of the brands, uh, or you know, just what you see in the marketplace, they they become successful, and then they try to hold on to that excess mm. and become defensive, 
rather than go on the offense and then actually try and change their ways and try to always mm. improve and do better. Mm. Do you see... Which one do you see more often? Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, and before we started this, we talked a little bit, a bit about the fact that brands are no longer what a company says says they are. It's what yes. the consumer, what their customer says that it is. Yes. And there's often a significant disconnect between what each side thinks. Most definitely. The smartest brands, whether we're talking about food or non-food, are always reviewing um, where they're at, yes. where they want to go, yep. what their position is in the marketplace, what their relevance is to a consumer, mm-hmm. what it is they need to be doing mm-hmm. right, to meet the needs of the consumer. Yes. I think um, one of the things that I've always said to my customers is, well, let's look at what the future is yeah. and let's ensure that we're identifying a, a, a trend Yes. And that we can see that the consumer's engaging with that trend. Yes. And then we want to move along in pace with the consumer as that trend develops. Yeah, I understand. If we get too far behind the trend, Mm -hmm. the consumer will move on to the next thing and we'll be left behind without that customer. Yes. Right? If we get too far in front of the customer, Mm -hmm. the customer will lose sight of where we've gone and they'll drift away to something else that they Mm -hmm. can see. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's important that each business understands where the customer's at, what the customer's looking for. Yep. And in some ways, Sean, it's actually not really rocket science, a lot of this stuff. Yes. I think the fundamentals of what the customer wants, and I think this is probably more important than ever, is around the consumer experience. Yes. And the value proposition. Yes. Which, of course, the consumer experience is a part of that value proposition right yeah totally agree um with the restaurant game being um extremely competitive uh, at every level at the moment uh, being a being a strategist as you are where do you think the fast casual space is in restaurants at the moment how do you see it played out especially in australia mm. look it's a great question it's good i'm full of good questions yeah it's good. clearly <laughs> <clears throat> pardon me it's the comment I'd make about the food space in general, almost mm. irrespective of what part of it you want to play in, yes. is it's it's a hyper-competitive market where it's really hard to get your message out yes. if you're a new brand. Yes. So if you're going to come into a really crowded segment, say like the burger market... Yes, yes. How do you, how do you actually get your message out in a way that it can be heard mm. over the message of all of the entrenched players yes. right, in yeah. whatever part of a burger market it might be, whether it's McDonald's and Hungry Jack's or whether it's Grilled, Royal Stacks, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How is it that you get your message out and heard? Yes. Because you can have the best product in the world, mm-hmm. however, if you haven't got the right marketing strategy to go with it yes it won't work yes and we've had this conversation Mm. previously where Mm. i've talked about i mean i've seen plenty of really good products with bad marketing fail right but i don't think i've ever seen a bad product with great marketing fail (laughs) it's a really interesting point Mm. and so there's the challenge for players in 
in all parts of the food industry, which is hyper-competitive in this country. It's probably the most brutal market in the world for food. Um, I'm sure if we, if we look at the per capita of restaurants, cafes, etc., for this market, we mm. have to be almost a global leader in that compared to other countries. Most definitely. So how do you get your message out? And <clears throat> Look, obviously social media is mm. one of the things that people have been looking at. Mm. People are having to be more and more innovative. They've got to be uh, attention-seeking. Yes. And, and you've really got so little time now to capture the attention to computer. You've got to hit them with a message mm. uh, visually or, or orally in such a way that they get it in the first few seconds. Mm. Otherwise, you've lost them because there's something else that's competing for their attention. Yes. So hence, I think that's one of the reasons why Instagram yes. has really had so much success is that, you know, a picture says a thousand words. Most definitely, yep. And people just get it in a heartbeat. And, yes. And the great thing about a picture mm. is that people will attach their own particular interpretation to that. Yes. Right, whichever, whatever best suits their... Uh, definition of the subject of course and how they feel about it mm. so you can just put it out there and as long as that picture's really exciting and interesting mm. um, people attach their own meaning to it and engage however they choose to engage with it so it's it's a challenging time to be in the food business but of course the rewards are also great if you get it right without a doubt do you, do you feel maybe there is so many venues because of marketing and the reason why I say that is because um, I speak to a lot of social marketers and 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 a lot of and a lot of venues that will have customers who come in and bring in their phone and will show an Instagram post from that venue and say I want that which is remarkably changed than when you would have owned Walters where mm. when you would have relied on having great customer service a great range to get word of mouth mm. and hopefully you would have got a great write up in the age or the Australian or mm. whatever food section, which would have been a lot more expansive than what it is now. Um, and not much, you know, there, there wasn't an online capacity until the late 90s. So mm. do, do you feel that the rise in venues has actually been because of the rise of social media to some extent? I think um, there's probably two things I'd like to say about that. The yeah. first one I'd say is that the, the word of mouth experience is now no longer, I think, generated essentially about the in-venue experience. The yes. word-of-mouth experience is around the social media experience. Yeah. Have you seen this great post on Instagram? Yes. And, yep. and the, and the, and the word-of-mouth likes, Yes. Yeah. ticks, etc. that we see, that is driving, I think, to a large extent, the in-venue experience, certainly for parts of the market. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the actual proliferation of venues itself, I think there's a number of other factors at play there, mm-hmm. not the least of which is, I think, that we're certainly seeing significant employment restructuring. Yes. As big business continues to do more and continues to do more and more with less and less employees, Yes, we're going to have more and more people being made redundant and looking for new ways of earning an income. Yes, um, And a lot of people will turn to service industries mm-hmm. where they're using their own labour to produce something. Mm-hmm. The food business has been a very popular one for people for a long period of time. Mm. 
simply because most people think that they're capable of running a food business. They think it's easy. They think it's easy. Yes. I can do a dinner party at home. Yes. Yeah. Sure, I can do this for five Of course, of course I can do yes. this. You know? and, that's, yeah. and that's been a common fallacy for years. Yes. So I think whilst we continue to go through this technological revolution yeah. where we'll continue to see jobs shed at a significant rate, we're going to see more and more people looking to generate an income differently to what they have historically. Yes. And hence, we'll be looking for service industries and they'll also be looking at food. Right. And, and of course, if you look at food as, as a component of the retail mix at shopping centres, yes. if you go back, say, 10 years ago, food in its various forms may have been anywhere from oh, 10 to 14% in food. Mm, of the tenancy mix, yeah. Now, of the tenancy mix, yes. uh, there'd be some centres now which are you know, closer to 40. I totally agree. Yeah, that's all I'm hearing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So up to 50. So while we see that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, fashion and the traditional anchor tenants of retail have been decimated, yes, the, the things that are protected and to a certain extent fireproofed against the ravages of the internet, yes, they're taking up those vacancies in the malls. Yes, most definitely. Because I don't think malls are going to get smaller. <laughs> well, no. Or and existing, existing malls. Indeed. Know. and. Mm. And of course, there's another conversation there about how malls are getting bigger and bigger. Yes. And they're building a bigger pie. Mm. However, tenants that have been in those malls, for, particularly food tenants who've been in there for a fair while, are saying, yes, the pie's getting bigger, but you're putting more and more people in here, so my share of the pie is getting less and less. Correct. People can only afford to spend so much on food, you know, in comparison. Correct. Yeah. It's, again, it's fascinating that the... I would posit that the savings that some people are making with online shopping, particularly in fashion and other things that they're buying online, mm. some of those savings are going towards discretionary purchases that they're actually making back in the malls on things like food. I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely totally agree. I think that's been probably the biggest generational shift in the last 20 years mm. is that people's discretionary spend on food is just exceptionally high. Yeah, yeah. You know, the want for people to have... <clears throat> delivered meals um, uh, to go out to restaurants um, like I think a lot of people listening to this would have gone to restaurants only on celebration In, absolutely birthdays you know um, engagements uh, promotions absolutely. all those kind of things now it's now if you're not going out on a Friday and Saturday night it's like well and not putting on Instagram what's wrong with you yeah absolutely yeah. and and particularly for you know the younger generations, uh, they're using more and more um, restaurants, cafes, etc., as forums yes. for social interaction. Yeah, most definitely. They're not meeting at home, yes. etc. Uh, there's a lot of shared accommodation, high density living, etc. Mm -hmm. So they're getting out of that environment mm. into their favourite social forum and they're choosing that meeting place. Uh, to as where they assemble their friends. Yes. And then it's incumbent on the operator to make sure that they're creating the right environment and they don't do anything um, to upset yes. um, the people whilst they're there who are using that place to congregate and to talk. And celebrate. Yeah, and yeah. to celebrate. And to a certain extent, the food and beverage in a lot of those venues are secondary. Yeah. <laughs> it's just about don't let it get in the way of what I'm trying to do. Just make it all happen, make it affordable. I want to do this as often 
as I feel like. Yes. Done. And just make it all happen and let me have a good time. Yeah, totally agree. Well, I think that brings on to um, a question that we're talking about price points. So we're talking about some sectors in the market that are really focusing on price uh, more than others. Um, what do you think, the, for any, any brands listening, what do you think, or restaurateurs, what do you think the, the winning form there is around price point? I know it's a really open question, but... I think I tend to respond to the issue of price. I'd rather talk about value. Yes. And the value proposition. Yes. I mean, I have a saying that for a lot of the market, not all of the market, for a lot of the market, the price, the actual dollars paid, the price will only be an issue in the absence of sufficient satisfaction. Yes. Now, if you think about, if you go to a very high-end restaurant... Yes. ...and you've had a great time, mm-hmm. you probably won't worry too much about what the bill was. Mm. Yep. Most that of same it. person could go to his corner shop... Yes. ...and spend a few dollars on a pie or a pasty or something like that... Yeah. ...and if the thing's been sitting in the, the pie warmer... Mm-hmm. ...and it's inedible... Yes. ...they're going to be really... Yeah, really... ...really annoying. upset about it and yep. it's costing $3. Yes, yes. So it's about how fee- how people feel about what they've paid for what they've got. Interesting. That value proposition. Yes. And of course, the French have this beautiful expression. They talk about when even the bill is sweet when yeah, you go to a right. restaurant. I mean, okay. it's a great way of summing up that there was no pain felt mm. at all. It was a great night. I had a ball. And the numbers become irrelevant, mm. which is the case when you go on holidays. When yes. you're on holidays, most, most people sort of spend money more freely yes. because they're in a conducive environment to spend. Yes. Right? So yes. the money doesn't matter because they're having a good time. Mm. And I think it's very much the same thing for brands, certainly at the top end, at the next level down, the, 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 the smart, casual places that we see, and then down into fast casual. Now, when it can become an issue is right down the bottom, I think, at the at the bottom end of the QSR. Yes. Right, where people are very, very, very limited. Yes. In terms of how much they have to spend on something. Yes. And then it's a matter of, okay, what do I get from a buck? Now, even then, they're going to be value conscious. Yes. Right? But the quantum becomes even more important because they've only got that amount of money to spend. Do you, do you find that lower end of the market, that cust, that consumer is literally just going to chase the brand with the best price or the best special, so therefore it's really a counterproductive long-term method for that brand? Look, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's necessarily counterproductive. I do think that consumers w- will chase the deals. Yes, yes. So they will, they will be deal-driven and they'll move around. Yes. However, I think that... Um, They'll still be sensitive to the value of what they got, the quality of what they got. Yes. So there's an opportunity for people playing in that space yep. to actually win those customers by just delivering a superior offer to the next one, doing the same dollar offer or two dollar offer yes. or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a bit about um, uh, price point. We've talked about levels in the industry. Um, you've obviously owned and run and and been part of a lot of great brands. When you look at a customer experience with inside the four walls of a restaurant, <clears throat> what 
what part of that experience for a consumer have you always honed on with your teams, uh, companies that you've worked with as being the most important generally? Yeah, that's probably the easiest question you've asked me today. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right, good. It's, it's all about your, your team in the restaurant. Yes. It's completely about the team. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the market, the labour market in which we operate, which yep. is a very high-cost labour market, and indeed yep. I think restaurant and caterers say that um, the percentage labour represents something like 48% of turnover now in most food venues. Yeah, it's extreme. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's moved significantly from what it was, say, 20 years ago. Yes. When it was more like, you know, the early 30s. Yes. And from early 30s to late 40s is a 50% increase. So let's not underestimate yeah. just how much it's moved. Yes. So <clears throat> the people factor is the critical one. The old axiom of um, bad waiters will murder great food. Right. Great waiters can save rubbish food. Yes, right? yes. The first 30 seconds that a customer walks in the door, whether it's in your fast casual restaurant or mm-hmm. whether it's in your very uh, high-end fine diner, yep. and the last 30 seconds as they're going out the door, yes. these are the things that shape the experience. Mm-hmm. The ability of the person doing the meet and greet and doing the farewell to shape the overall impression mm-hmm. of the customer's experience is extraordinary. And the effect that that has on repeat visitation should not in any way be underestimated. Let me give you an example of, a, of one restaurant that does that meet and greet and the farewell incredibly well. Yes. I've been a, an occasional customer at the Flower Drum in Melbourne for mm-hmm. many, many years. Mm-hmm. Right? When you walk into the Flower Drum at night for dinner, right, and you walk from the from the meet and greet point at the start, perhaps all the way to the back of the restaurant, yes. where your table might be, as you walk through that restaurant, you'll be acknowledged by every staff member. Right. Every staff member. It's like a flanks of, of people welcoming you to the venue, mm. and then when you leave, normally there'll be at least four, three or four people near the door encouraging you to come back soon. These are things that make a difference. Now, the flower drum's been around for however many years. A long right? time. A long time. Why is it? Because people have a good time. Is the flower drum an inexpensive restaurant to go to? By no means. Yes. yes. I mean, in a restaurant with however many thousand Chinese... In, sorry, in a city with however many thousand Chinese restaurants. Yes. How have they managed to survive for as long as what they do? Most well, definitely. they've run their business in an incredibly professional way. Yes. They've always run it to a standard, not to a price. They've always run it mm-hmm. to a standard. Mm-hmm. And part of that standard has been having exceptional people skills and ensuring that the customer feels special. So that customer experience, whether you're a fine diner like the flower drum or whether you're at the other end of the market with a QSR, yes. a simple good morning, mm-hmm. good evening, hello, mm-hmm. goodbye, mm-hmm. The fundamentals of common courtesy are now so rare in the retail environment in which we live. In your food business, you actually have an opportunity to differentiate yourself from the next business by having your staff engage in those simple common courtesies. So that brings me to the point of, well, how do you get people like that? Well, yes. firstly, you need that was to have... next question. Yeah, well, you need to have people recruiting mm. who actually hold those values mm-hmm. to whom it's important that they say... 
good morning, yes. Bri, please, yes. thank you. Yes. Because they will recruit people who have similar values to themselves. Most definitely. Now, if you've got a lot of staff that don't have the common courtesies, it probably means that you've got the managers or the people doing the recruitment that don't have the common courtesies. Yes. The best thing you can do is then fire the people hiring the people. Yes. Because right? yes. that's where you've got to start. Yeah, most definitely. You've got to start there. So that, that whole customer experience thing, please, thank you, hello, goodbye, mm. please come again soon. Mm. I mean, these are just the fundamentals of hospitality. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about a restaurant at $250 a head or whether it's you know, someone walking in to get their dollar bag of chips. Yes. How about, hi, good morning. Mm. Because you don't know who that customer is actually going to turn out to be for the long run of the brand. It's a bit like how Apple services their consumer. They think about them in the, you know, the 10-year cycle of that customer experience. They don't think about that transaction in the hour or so. You might be choosing what phone you want or what iPad you want. Absolutely, Chum. And, mm. and one of the things that, um, as an industry, and certainly retail, has become way too transactional. Yes. It's become that transactional to the point where people don't even now, when they ask you for your money yes. to pay for something, they don't yes. even say please. Yes. The amount of times people just say ten dollars. Yes. Not ten dollars, please. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like you doing, like you doing them a favour. Yeah, by coming. Yeah. So, those people who focus on getting exceptional customer standards. Yes. Right, and delivering. Yes. The things that help their customers feel good about being in their environment are the ones that will do well yep. with their in-store experiences. Yeah, right? most definitely, most definitely. And I would posit that a lot of retail experiences in general, yes, um, and I'm talking non-food here, yes, actually the in-store experience adds negative value. Yes. So given that that in-store experience adds negative value, yes. Why am I going to get off, off the couch and go down to your store to get ordinary service and pay more for something mm. when I can sit at home and buy it from whoever I like yes. for probably half the price yes. and have it delivered at a time of my choosing? Yep. And yet retailers in general continue to want to not recognise the importance of their customer service and the in-store experience. And a lot of them also just pay lip service to it. Do you know I heard, um, it's funny we're talking about online shopping now, but I've actually heard that the biggest doors, doors, front doors selling in America at the moment uh, is a door that sits in front of your normal door so Amazon can put the package in your front door. There you go. <laughs> so... The world's completely changing. There you go. Um, Frank, I think we can talk for hours, but I know you're a busy man, so I don't want to do that. Um, I, uh, I know you're a, obviously a massive lover of wine. I hope you do, in time, open up another wine bar so I can <laughs> frequent it. But um, I wanted to ask, um, as, as a closing question, um, what, what your favourite wine that you're drinking is the, at the moment, if that's an actual question to ask you? Oh, gee. Possible question. <clears throat> well, it's a good question. Um, I think uh, certainly in Australia, we've got a lot of interesting things going on here um, with both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yes. As well as uh, some of the more recently introduced varietals like Nebbiolo. Yes. 
Um, and probably those varieties are the ones that most int- interest me the most. Okay. And I tend to focus on out of Australia, along with some Shiraz as well. Yes. Um, but I guess, you know, for a long time I've been a great devotee of European wines and mm-hmm. a real Francophile. Mm-hmm. And so hence the wines of France, also wines of Italy, Spain, Germany, mm-hmm. etc. So out of mm-hmm. France... Love Chablis, which is one of the great wines of the world and inimitable and still pretty affordable mm-hmm. at the, at the uh, most simple, you know, entry-level Chablis, the village wines. And with Nebbiolo, if you, go, if you talk about uh, Langy Nebbiolo from Piedmonte, those wines are very affordable. Mm-hmm. So pretty much our house wines here, the things that we like to drink are either Australian Pernod, Australian Chardonnay or Pernod, Chardonnay, Nebbiolo... Tempranillo out yes. of Europe. They're the things that we like. Beautiful. Well, happily pour you a glass if it was a bit oh, later in the day, oh, sure. Uh, but uh, but sh- at this time of the morning, should, it's a bit We should have done in the afternoon, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> we should have. Uh, Frank, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I'll link in uh, all your LinkedIn details. I think it's the easiest way for people to contact you if they would like to in the bio. Um, and appreciate your time. Thanks yeah, it's very a pleasure, much. Sean. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> well, but I hope you got some useful stuff out of it. Oh, that would, no, that was a, that could have been a much longer conversation. Well, yeah, they're interesting discussions. You know? mm-hmm.